The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Well, good evening. I'm, I'm really pleased to be here. It's been a while since I've been here on a Thursday night, and uh, the number of people continues to increase. I wanted to, uh, when Andrea called and asked if I would uh, be interested in talking to you guys for a series of nights, she suggested that a, some kind of thematic unity might be useful. In other words, a topic that extended over uh, more than one evening. And it occurred to me immediately that uh, one, of the, one of the topics, one of the items that's not given really, in my view, adequate attention is the practice of the precepts. And so what I am planning to do is to, is to go over the precepts from a number of different perspectives over the next, uh, tonight and the next three Thursdays. Let me just ask if there's anyone, <clears throat> is everybody familiar with the precepts, at least have a clue of what we're talking about, or people, anybody not know? So I can start from scratch. Okay. Alrighty. Um, a lot of us come to the Buddha's, the Buddha's teachings through meditation. We discover meditation, uh, we hear about it, and we come for a variety of reasons to reduce stress or to expand our spirituality or a whole variety of reasons. Each, each of us has a, a different reason. But the Buddha's path for the cessation of the dissatisfaction in our lives is an eightfold path. It's not just a one-fold path. Um, and so although the meditation portion of the eightfold path is, um, there, there are several elements to it. There's the mindfulness practice that we do, and there's uh, concentration practice of some sort. It's, there's a lot of debate about what this means, whether it just means stability of mindfulness or whether it means the cultivation of exotic absorption states, but some form of stability or concentration. But there are also uh, three elements of the Eightfold Path that are related to our behavior in the world and the way in which we interact with other people. Uh, two of the elements are considered wisdom elements, um, which are usually presented as right understanding and right intention. But right speech, right action, and right livelihood are central to the Buddha's program. And there tends to be some shying away from them uh, in, the, in, the, in the teachings, partly because a lot of us come to practice fleeing from uh, more conventional religious practices which, which lean heavily on morality and shoulds and shouldn'ts. Uh, the precepts are a set of training practices for the purpose of attenuating dukkha, suffering, uh, towards the end of the cessation of suffering, and they're in... in uh, furtherance of right speech, right action, right livelihood, those elements of, of the Eightfold Path. And there are, there are usually five of them that you may be familiar with. 
that are practiced by lay people. Uh, I'll just sort of rattle them off um, quickly, just for those of you who might not remember all five. Um, Usually they're presented in the form something similar to, for the purposes of practice, I vow to refrain from taking life. For the purposes of practice, I vow to refrain from taking what is not freely given. For the purposes of practice, I vow to refrain from sensual and sexual misconduct. And for the purposes of practice, I vow to refrain from false speech. And the fifth is, for the purposes of practice, I vow to refrain from the use of drugs or alcohol that lead to heedlessness. I always, when I always think of that one, I think, well, I'm, I spend most of my time heedless enough. I don't need help. <laughs> so, so these precepts are usually uh, presented as part of the teaching, and um, people take them. Many of you have taken them. I'm not quite sure what take means in the concept, but we, we uh, take the precepts in one form or another, and we make an effort to pay attention to them somehow. But uh, I, my guess is, um, in my experience anyway, there's a lot more uh, consistency and reliability in practicing meditation than in precept practice. And, you know. uh, so what I, what I would like to do is to talk a little bit about uh, the first night, just about the context in which precept practice occurs, and to try to t- try to think a little bit about what it is, what it's doing, why it's important. Next week we'll talk a little bit about uh, the precepts individually and examine them separately in some depth. In the third week I'd like to talk a little bit about uh, the precepts as um, part of training for, <clears throat> excuse me, intention training and karma, and their their role in in the liberation process, the freedom process that the Buddha was presenting. And then for the fourth, for the fourth um, Thursday, I'd like to talk a little bit about the the element that's almost. Almost never. Has anybody ever heard a talk on right livelihood? Yeah, occasion- I, I guess occasionally, but not often. Um, so I'm going to spend uh, the fourth talking about right livelihood and actually almost right lifestyle. So we'll talk a little bit about that the fourth night. So the precepts are the... Um, the practice rules that we adopt for the purpose of waking up. The biggest thing about the precepts, the hardest, the biggest hurdle to overcome for those of us in the West is to not think of them as commandments or as having anything to do with right and wrong because they're not really constructed for that purpose. Sometimes you'll hear people talk about breaking a precept or, you know, I had a glass of wine at dinner, I guess I broke a precept. Um, Excuse me. Or, you know, people people think that if somehow um, uh, you're you're acting not in accord with the precepts, you're, you're breaking it. There's something wrong. It's a failure. It's a... 
you know, it's like a commandment. It's a, it's a rule of right or wrong. But really, these are practice rules. They're, they're rules set up for practice uh, and function in our walking around daily life the way the breath functions when we're sitting on the cushion. So they become a, a focus for mindfulness. Uh, Musang, who's one of the uh, the teachers at the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies, I was there this summer, and he, he said something that just struck me. He said, the most important thing that the Buddha did was to remain a monk. And I've been thinking about that for months. <laughs> um, because we're not monastics, and so we we are bringing the Dharma into our lives as we live them. The Buddha... You know, if you think about what what he actually did, I mean, day to day, he sat and he taught. Um, well, he went on alms rounds, and you know, he, he didn't have kids and a mortgage and a job and co-workers and the media and you know what we got. Um, and so we need, we need to interpolate his dharma into our lifestyle. His lifestyle was not like ours. <clears throat> and so we need to figure out how to, how to bring it in both metaphysically as well as, as practically. Metaphysically, how do, how do we relate to all of that deva business and the... You know, not everybody relates to it the same way. Some of us will just import it, you know, the reincarnation, rebirth business, and some of us will not. So we're sort of all over the board on the metaphysics. But in terms of the practice, uh, how, do we, how do we import the Dharma into our daily life? It's probably the question that, I, that you hear the most at the end of meditation retreats. How do I bring this into my daily life? Um, and the, the way to do it is is through through practicing with the precepts. The precepts really are. I mean, that's how they they function, and they function as training rules. They're not about um, right or wrong, but they're any more than, for example, if you decide. That for the per- you're going to train for a marathon, so <clears throat> you're going to run every day for I don't know. Somebody here has probably done it, so it's probably like what you run for an hour or two a day, something like that. Anybody know? So you say I'm going to run for two hours a day, and then one day you don't run for two hours. You know, you sleep in or you go to a movie or something. I mean, you didn't break anything, you just didn't practice that day. So not living in accord with the precepts. I mean, practicing the precepts means living in accord with them, living, living in terms of them. Um, not observing a precept just means you weren't practicing at that point. You were doing something else. You know, so it's not, it's not a failure any more than the mind drifting off the breath. Anybody have that happen? <laughs> you know, the mind drifts off the breath, and and we um, 
neglect to observe uh, a particular precept in our behavior. And, well, mindfulness will bring us back to recall that, oh, I'm supposed to be working on this. So it's not a commandment. And, and so if we, if we pr- pick a particular precept, for example, um, to not speak falsely, for the purposes of training, I make a resolution not to speak falsely. I mean, I can, I can imagine situations in which speaking the truth would be downright unethical. You know, if, uh, if the Nazis come and knock on your door and say, is Anne Frank here, do you say, ah, you got me. Again, <laughs> in the attic behind the fake bookcase, you know, you don't... <laughs> you know, so speaking the truth is not a commandment. What we want to do is to bring mindful awareness to the situation and, and understand the context so that the precepts actually, in some ways, become tools for ethical inquiry. What is correct in this particular situation? And, how, and what that means is, what in this situation is the way to attenuate <clears throat> suffering somehow, if not for it to totally subside? See, in the Buddhist program, um, you know, the Four Noble Truths, um, the task for the, f- the, first, the first of the truths is that dissatisfaction uh, comes with the territory. Um, you probably have noticed, if you think about it, um, there's, you've got your helping of dissatisfaction. And joy shows up some. I mean, it, there's some of each, but the dissatisfaction comes with the territory. If satisfaction is important to you, you're going to be dissatisfied. You know, if you are fully liberated and free, then perhaps the issue is moot. But if if satisfaction is is uh, an issue, and the and the Buddha's instruction is to understand this dissatisfaction, the nature of this fully. Of course, if you understood it fully, the possibility exists that you would be free. You would be able to be free from it, not be snagged by it. You'd see it coming. The origin of this dissatisfaction, the Buddha said, is tanha, which is a kind of thirsting desire. It's not, <clears throat> excuse me, it's not every impulse to do something. It's not every want. But because there are some desires that are skillful and some that are not. Actually, the word tanha translates as thirst. The word for desire is more like chanda. There's, in, in the same way that the Eskimos have, how many, 30-something words for snow, in Pali there's 20-something words for desire. Um, so we sort of gloss over different, uh, um, different subtleties in, in those impulses. But this is a kind of... Um, Desire that can't be satisfied. Uh, it's you know, it's like thirst. We feel like we don't have any choice in the matter. Uh, um, if only such and such happen. If only I can get this, whatever, then I'll be okay. It's and but once once that happens, then we're thirsty again. 
uh, the desire arises again and again. And so this desire is to be abandoned. This is the, the task for the second truth, is to just abandon it, not to bludgeon it into, or push it away, or, you know, there's, it's not, but just to abandon it, to shed it. In, this, in uh, uh, one of the metaphors the Buddha uses is uh, like a snake shedding its worn-out skin. To just, just abandon it, and the third truth is the truth of the availability of cessation, the cessation of dukkha, of suffering, unsatisfactoriness, the cessation of tanha. And the path, or the strategy, actually I, I start thinking of the Eightfold Path, we translate it as path, I think of it as a strategy, uh, almost uh, more than a path, because it's something we do, a path in a sense, feels like it's there even if we're not doing it. And we can, it's like the yellow brick road. You know, you can follow it if you want, but it's, but it's, but this is, this is, um, it doesn't exist separate from our behavior. Um, uh, so I think of it as the, the Eightfold Strategy. And this is what we're to cultivate. The Buddha says that the cultivation of this, uh, this program, this strategy, is the, is the, uh, or many say path, <laughs> to the cessation of, of, uh, of dukkha, of the dissatisfaction that is, is um, built, into our, built into our life. Um, so the purposes of the precepts, actually they function fairly simply. If you set a rule... Um, that you're going to um, uh, not, uh, for the purposes of training, I, I won't speak falsely. And if you're actually being attentive to your speech, when the impulse to exaggerate comes up, for example, I, I, my granddaughter is uh, nine, and we're buddies, and we get in the car, and we drive for hours and talk. It's just really fun. Of course, in L.A., you can drive for hours and not go very far. Um, so it doesn't really matter. We had a long talk the last time I was down there about whether exaggeration was lying. You know, whether that was... And, you know, it was, it was more of an exploration than, you know, I wasn't... It was, it, was, it was kind of fun. But if you're paying attention to your speech, you'd notice, you would no, mindfully, as you're, as you're speaking, you might notice the impulse to exaggerate because you're being alert to that kind of behavior in yourself. And, well, then if you notice it arising, you have a choice to either go ahead or to not go ahead. If you don't notice it, you're liable. I mean, I, I, I don't know about you, but sometimes I, I, it, it makes me laugh. You notice your, once your mouth starts going, um, you don't even know what you're going to say next. I don't know what I'm going to say next. just starts, you know, going, and the next thing you know, wow, I can't believe I said that. Um, so a lot of speech is often not so mindful. Um, but the idea here is to set a rule of conduct 
a behavioral rule that will help alert us to our our behavior. Now, I I, I have a in my my group in Davis we we meet uh, we have a precept support um, meeting every every month, and we've been talking about how difficult it is to actually watch some of this stuff. So some of the rules that we've we've started playing with are uh, more specific kinds of things. So this month our task in, in terms of right speech or not speaking falsely is to notice, is to, is to, our vow is to not engage in self-promotion. Because that's something we can notice ourselves doing. Right speech, pretty amorphous, pretty abstract, pretty vague, kind of hard to know when you, but self-promotion. And it's surprising, <laughs> not that, I mean, if you're going for a job interview, go for it. <laughs> you know, I mean, we don't, have to, we don't have to sabotage ourselves. The purpose is for training, you know, not to be good as opposed to bad. You know, not to be right as opposed to wrong. It's to help bring mindful awareness to our behavior and our interactions with other people. Because that's, you know, most of our most of our issues show up with other people. I think um, we don't get mad at the weather I, unless you're King Lear. <laughs> you don't really get mad at the weather. I don't think people in Australia are standing there looking at the river and shaking their fists. Um, you know, but we but but our our issues show up in in interaction with with other people. Um, so we're using, um, we're using these practice rules as tools for ethical inquiry into how to best attenuate dukkha in our behavior. And it's a central part. It's not, it's a, a requisite for awakening. It's not, Andy Olensky, who's the executive director of the of the uh, Barry Center for Buddhist Studies was was saying, you know, in most Asian countries, lay people don't meditate. They practice the precepts and they practice generosity. Meditation is not on their agenda. But he says, you know, that's not the booby prize. We don't regard it as as precious as the meditation practice. But in it's right there. It's a cornerstone of the practice. It's, um, it's essential for awakening. It also reflects um, uh, the understanding that you bring. Right understanding being the first of the uh, or wisdom, be, first of the wisdom elements of the Eightfold Path. Um, when the understanding is correct, the pra- practice of the precepts emerges. For one who was fully awakened, presumably, the practice of the precepts it wouldn't so much be a practice. It would just be how that person lived. Sila, the word in Pali that refers to, to these ethical practices, uh, and, and the word, a word that I, that I translate as, um, as ethical practice, uh, is in addition to being a one third of the eightfold path, one third of the of the uh, 
of the strategy for awakening, um, is also one of the paramis, one of the perfections of a Buddha. And it's not, in, in this, you know, and in, in the paramis um, were ten qualities that the Buddha cultivated over, I don't know, a gazillion lifetimes or something. He talks about mahakalpas. Anybody know how it's mahakalpas and a hundred mahakalpas? And a mahakalpa is how long, the, if, if you have Mount Everest and you have a bird that takes a handkerchief and flies over it once every hundred years and brushes it across Mount Everest, eventually it would wear it down. <laughs> and that's one mahakalpa. <laughs> so it's just a lot of lifetimes. In, in the mythology. But these were, these, the, I guess it's, for me it suggests that the, it, the cultivation of these qualities are not simple. You know, uh, you, we, can, we can work on them at least for the duration of our lifetimes. Um, but sila is one of these qualities. And these particular qualities, generosity, uh, truthfulness, kindness, equanimity, patience, um, these are qualities that exist for us already, that are available to us. You could say they exist in us if there was an us to exist, but they, they are available for us. They're part of, to the extent that there is our, our nature. If they weren't, we couldn't cultivate them. So in you know, living... Um, Living in accordance with the precepts is, you know, this is this is um, the goal of an awakened, of an awakened being, um, and so they're just they're just essential to the practice. They're just essential um, to our our freedom as we live among each other because otherwise we're sort of on automatic pilot and the next thing we know we're snapping at somebody or um, whatever it is that we do. You, you know what we do. Um, they integrate with the rest of the, of the strategy of the path. So it requires mindfulness and the mindful pra- mindfulness practice that we do as part of the meditation enhances our ability to see clearly in our day-to-day just what's going on. The wisdom element allows us to understand what's going on, and the precept practice is, is um, the way in which we behave so as to live, as the Buddha said, um, with the bliss of blameless, blamelessness. Imagine not feeling blameworthy in what in any way bliss, and a lot of that has to do with with the way we uh, we behave and the way we intend our actions, and we'll talk a little bit about that uh, in the coming in the coming weeks. Let me let me just pause for a second, and something I forgot to say at the beginning is to. In, Invite interruption and questions. If uh, I don't need to rattle on for, you know, straight uninterrupted. So if there's an issue or a question or a puzzlement, why don't 
um, I've come across uh, teachers who say that it, the rule is you have to. I won't quite go that far, but the invitation stands. Um, so the idea is to learn to recognize the impulses. What are the impulses that get us in trouble? Well, you know, the, the three, the, the poisons, um, greed, hatred, and delusion, get us in trouble. And the impulses on behalf of those are what lead us into uh, making things worse for ourselves and others, usually. And so the idea is to learn to recognize them so that we don't... We're, we're bound to them if we don't, aren't free from them. If every time an impulse to do something arises, if we have to do it, we're not free. Because you know the impulses arise in the same way the thoughts while you're sitting there. They just show up. And you go, geez, sometimes it's hard to imagine what shows up in your mind when you're meditating. Um, so the idea is to learn to recognize, to learn to recognize the kind of impulses that get us in trouble. And that's, and that's where, the, where the precepts address. I want to talk a little bit about... Um, about this specific action, ethical action, but not in terms of the precepts, in terms of a list of um, uh, ten unskillful actions that the Buddha identified, <coughs> and and save the discussion um, about the precepts for uh, the specific precepts for next week. But they're pretty close, actually. The ten unskillful actions are actions of body, speech, and mind. The actions of mind are uh, intentional. So there's greed, there's ill will or anger, and there is um, cruelty. We don't think of ourselves as being cruel particularly. I think most of us don't. Um, And... So I've thought about this for a little bit, and the way I understand uh, cruelty is that uh, it comes from an intention to um, create an unpleasant experience for another for for purposes that are not um, for the other's benefit. So, if, you know, if my grand when my granddaughter got her flu shot, she got it, they, her parents got her a swine, uh, was a swine flu was. So she did not want that. But the intention was not to inflict pain. The intention was to protect her. But if you say, if you don't get the car back by 10 o'clock on Friday night, you can't drive it, da-da-da-da-da. You know, there's, there's an intention to apply stick as opposed to carrot and to use the prospect of unpleasant. We do this in politics, too. It's the politics of fear versus the politics of hope. So it's it's greed or 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 fear. Um, so that's how I understand cruelty as a as as a um, yeah. Please. Cruelty also applies to yourself. It does being cruel to yourself as well. It does. Yeah. And compassion as well, right? We we include our ourselves as the objects of our actions. 
Um, so there's there's the unskillful actions of mind, of body. Uh, actually, they mirror the the precepts pretty much. So the unskillful actions of body are taking what's not freely given, uh, striking or killing another being, or engaging in um, unskillful, harmful sensuality or sexuality. The unskillful speech elements, there are four of those. One is false speech, but again, like I said, it's not so much that the false speech, it's not that speaking truth is good, it's, it's just that as a marker in a stream, in the stream of experience, it helps bring our attention to how we're representing the world. You know, I, um, if any of you have ever sailed, I, I used to, to do a lot of sailing on San Francisco Bay, and the tides can get pretty can get pretty strong. And you're sitting out there on a boat, you don't notice the current until you go drifting by a buoy. <laughs> and the buoy is like it's it's it looks like a river. It's got a there's a wake there, and you know, you know, you're as your boat goes sailing by, you go, whew. Um, wasn't watching for that. I, that happened to me once. Um, but it was amazing. It was a marker in the midst of the current, which I would not have noticed otherwise. And so these behavioral markers, the, the, the um, false or true, what is the intention to, rep- to represent? So, so false speech, um, divisive speech, the kind of speech that sets one person against another. The Buddha in the, uh, in the Honeyball Sutta, one of the Buddha's cousins, who was not a fan of his, I gather, his name was Dandapani. And he's, Dandapani is out walking in the woods, and he comes across the Buddha, and he says, and I sort of imagine him saying this with sort of a sneer, what is the holy man preaching? What's his dar- what does he teach? And the Buddha said, I teach a dharma that does not contend with anyone. That's an incredibly steep, you know, it's a, a really high bar. How do you live not in contention with anyone? Well, for the Buddha, we were talking about the Buddha's lifestyle. For the lifestyle of a monk, it may be a lot easier than for the lifestyle of a member of Congress. You know, I mean, that's their job, I guess. So, um, but... But we find ourselves in contention, not just uh, face-to-face, but in our minds, disagreeing with and, you know, arguing with. And, uh, if, if you're like me, talking to the media, even when you're alone, except with the media. <laughs> you know what I mean? Sometimes the media isn't even there. Um, but the contention... Uh, and the impulses, the kind of speech that leads to divisiveness and contention. Uh, the third, the third kind of speech that's con- that's considered unskillful is harsh speech. Um, and the fourth is idle is described as idle chatter. 
This is another one where, in order to understand my, you know, what idle chatter is, requires mindfulness. Because sitting and talking about the weather could be idle chatter, but it could also be an effort to reach out, to bond, um, just to express friendliness. It may be functional in a variety of ways. You know, talking about the giants could be idle chatter. Uh, but it could also be, you know, with, with my son is a huge Giants fan. So if I pay attention to the Giants, we have a starting point for conversation for about six or seven months out of the year uh, that then goes other places. So is it idle? Maybe not. Requires mindfulness to be able to see the context and what's going on. And it, and it requires some wisdom to be able to know what you're seeing. So it, 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 all, of the, all of the elements of the Eightfold Path are brought to bear in, um, in, our, in our interaction, and with, say, for my son. So I notice we're talking about, um, or he's talking about... <laughs> You know who's playing third base and why they should be or shouldn't be, and I'm learning. Yeah. And Tony, I wonder if you could comment on uh, joking or humor. On joking. Well, there's, there's, you know, there isn't just one kind of joke. So joking can be there can be all kinds of reasons for joking. Uh, some some jokes can be. Nasty for the purpose of hurting. Some jokes can be for the purpose of putting people at ease. So a lot of the a lot of uh, what joking is about has to do with the intention behind it, what you're trying to accomplish. Um, so, and then then some jokes are just bad. <laughs> so they're not. So it's it's no joke. <laughs> Particularly when you have to explain that it was a joke. <laughs> yeah. um. So these these the the um, the purpose of 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 identifying these ten um, unskillful actions is to talk a little bit about the kinds of sticks in the river or buoys in the bay that will help us notice the flow that we otherwise might not notice, the impulse to act out of greed or desire, or the, the impulse to act out of anger or irritation. Um, and give us the opportunity to restrain that, or, or you know, the Buddha in his instructions to his son, um, in one of the suttas where he's giving instruction to his son, the instruction goes something like, you know, in, when you're thinking of doing something, if it seems that that, would be, that that action would be for the detriment of yourself and others, don't do it. If you're in the middle of, of something and you discover that it's not skillful, you can stop. If you've completed an action and in retrospect you see that it was not for the benefit of yourself or others, 
<clears throat> particularly if you experience remorse, you can make amends and resolve to not do it again. You know, and that's practice. It's you know, if if your if your rule of practice is to is to you know learn to play a scale on the piano, and I never did, but I watched my brother, and he would do something where he'd roll his fingers over when he'd play a scale, some like that. I don't know. If your rule of practice is to practice your scales, you you know you do those as practice, and after a while you get better. And it's the same with the precepts. We work at them. It's not a matter of I've fallen off the wagon; I can never get back. These are these are elements of practice. It's like pay, paying attention to your breathing, and they're elements of practice. The purpose of which is to help us awaken to the dissatisfaction that arises from the kind of impulses that, that drag us around. <clears throat> Achan Jumian, who's a, who's a Thai monk who shows up in, uh, at Spirit Rock um, pretty much every year for a long time, um, described once he said, you know, the de- desire is like the, with the moth and the flame. The moth only sees the flame. Everything else looks dark. Focused on the flame and not noticing its own impulse to fly into the flame. And so we're sort of the same with, with desire. The object of our desire, of our craving, is all we see. We don't see consequences. We don't see side effects. We don't anticipate. We don't want to. You know, we just whatever we just want whatever it is. And the purpose of the precepts here is to sort of by by taking making a resolve to pay attention. It's like sitting down and saying, I'm gonna sit for twenty minutes or forty minutes or however long. I'm going to sit and do my best to follow my breath and see what happens. That's sort of what we do, you know, and we we see what happens. Well, with the with it's the the same with the precepts. We make a resolve, and uh, and we're actually going to uh, do a, a short uh, guided practice in in regard to the to the uh, precepts, um, just to just to take a look at them and to and to study our own relationship to them as it exists at the present time, what our resolve is. There's a difference between a, a resolve and a wish. I wish I could lose some weight. As, and I, 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 I have said that as I'm taking a Dove bar out of the freezer. <laughs> it's just amazing. It's just amazing. You can, you can, and actually what I'm, what I'm saying is I wish I could lose some weight, but I want that Dove bar. And, uh, or I wish I could do something. But in this case, we, we, we will take a look at resolve, which is different than just wish. It's, so it's, it's stated as, I vow to refrain from. But we're talking about a, a committed choice. I'm actually going to do this. I'm actually going to sit for 20 minutes. You know, <coughs> un, unless the river rises. <laughs> and then you have permission to get up. But then you've broken your sit. You just can't break a precept. It's not the kind of critter to break. 
but I, I can't, I, I'm sure you've all heard breaking precepts as a, as a problem. So before we do a little guided practice on, on, um, on the, the precepts, I just want to check and see if there, there are questions, you know, in terms of what I've been saying or your understanding of them. Um, Because they are they are so central to the to to the Buddha's program. I do have a question, please. Um, and it's um, I've heard about refraining from sexual misconduct, mm-hmm. but that when you use the word sensual, mm-hmm. you lost me a bit. Okay, I'll, I'm going to talk more about that next week. But the but the precept itself, the uh, the Pali words uh, kamesu mishachara is is kama is sensual is the word for sensuality. Um, so kamesu, uh, we're talking about sensual and mostly sexual misconduct. I think it'd be, in my view, and Gil would, would know probably, well, certainly better than, than I do, but I think that uh, when the Buddha is overseeing a sangha full of young men who are expected to be celibate, I think the um, sexuality is more of an issue for them, and I think it's it's a it's probably the most the strongest of the sensual the the, the impulses for pleasant experience is probably the most powerful because um, we've all found ourselves at one time or another um, not free from it. Is that a, is that a fair way to to say it? So. Um, more broadly, it refers to sensual uh, misconduct as well, and we'll talk a little bit about what that might mean. The precept is almost always presented as to refrain from sexual misconduct or from a, a harmful sexuality, um, but the word the word does imply more broadly, and I think there may be some lessons in that which we'll look at next week. Anything else on jumping out at you? Well, usually the way the precepts are addressed um, is for people to take them. It always reminds me, anybody remember the Firesign Theater? Yeah. They, they, there was this great line where they said, we threw the I Ching out the window. Um, so I'm not quite sure when, when we take the precepts, we're, we're making a vow, we're vowing, we're, so I'm not quite sure how take gets to be um, I've taken them myself, and I'm not quite, quite sure what that was, but um, usually the way it's done is uh, to recite in a chanting form, either in Pali or in English, for the purposes of training. And sometimes it's done call and response. The teacher will say, for the purposes of training, and everybody goes, for the purposes of training. You know, I've had a refrain from taking life. I've had a refrain. Then we go on to the next one, and then you know, we ring a bell, and, and, and that's sort of done. What I would like to do is to, is to do a short uh, guided meditation in regard to the precepts um, and just contemplate our relationship to them. So if we can take a minute or two, and you don't have to be in a special posture, just to allow yourself to settle for a moment. And just check in with the breathing for 
uh, a moment or two. And contemplate the possibility of resolving to refrain from striking at living beings and taking life. At the, at the minimalist end, just striking at living beings may be a pretty tall order. How does that feel? Does that feel more than we can accomplish? Something we'd like to be able to do? Something we think we might not be able to manage? Just take a look at your own, how you feel about that. or at, at uh, the other end to refrain from taking life. There are situations that jump up that suggest that might be difficult to observe. At what level are you comfortable committing? Is it, or are we, it's possible also to just wait and see how it develops. What is the relationship to that resolve? For the purposes of training, can we vow to refrain from taking what's not freely given? Are there situations where we might imagine taking things not freely given? Is it a constraint that's more than we can manage? Is it an easy resolution to make? Just how comfortable are we with that kind of commitment? For the purposes of training, I vow to refrain from unskillful sexuality. What might that mean? Is sexual energy something that can be restrained, that we should restrain, that we want to? How do, how are we, how do we hold that when it arises? for us. We imagine effort in restraint, a wishing. How do we hold that? For the purposes of training, I vow to refrain from false speech. Sounds very simple. How much attention do we think that we can bring to our speaking? Are there some contexts where it might be easier than others? Is 
Is this too daunting to undertake? Something we'd like to give it a try? Just take a look at how you relate to that particular prospect of refraining from false speech. And for the purposes of training, resolve to refrain from the use of drugs or alcohol that cause heedlessness. There's a lot of moralism surrounding the use of alcohol, lots and drugs, lots of good and bad and righteousness and not. This would be for the purposes of not muddying the mind and making it more difficult to see things as they are. How much of a resolve is possible, not asking to even change your behavior. Just how does that precept as a rule of conduct strike you? Good idea, too moralistic, any of the above? And finally, let's take a look at all the precepts at once and how we might hold them in regard to our practice, just to see whether there's something that seems important, might be important, not on the dance card, central to the practice. Let's see how it relates, how you relate to it at the present time. And see what kind of a resolution you might formulate for yourself in regard to the practice of the precepts. I want to thank you for your attention, and next week we will do some, we'll look at the precepts individually and explore them separately in more depth. And if there are any other questions, we can, you can hassle me afterwards. Thank you very much.